all the other uh, ministries ongoing as far as part of Vacation Bible School. We ask your blessing on it all this evening and uh, commit ourselves and our study to you now. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's two great reasons to study First uh, and Second Thessalonians, and that is First and Second Thessalonians, right? Uh, it's kind of interesting. People, a lot, a lot of Christians want to say, you know what? The things that relate to the rapture and the talk about the day of the Lord doesn't really matter. Well, for some reason, the Holy Spirit felt it necessary to include these two books in the canon of Scripture, and I, I think they're important. And uh, so we'll continue to look at this here tonight. Uh, we left off last time in Second Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, uh, who is the uh, son of perdition. So uh, let's go to page 121 and just back up for just a moment. The second paragraph there, just as far as a summary of where we left off. Uh, so the thought of verse 3, as I take it, is that before the day of the Lord comes in earnest, two things must be in place. One, the departure of the Spirit. The falling away, I take, literally, is departure. Uh, the departure of the Spirit and His restraining ministry through the church must, take, must first take place. And then two, which results in Antichrist being revealed as seen in the signing of a seven-year covenant with Israel. Uh, jump down under the uh, insert there. Uh, Paul now develops the revealing of Antichrist and where it goes from there. When the Spirit is removed, the Antichrist is going to fill that vacuum and it will manifest itself in ultimate blasphemy. And that's where we go. Chapter 2 here, verse 4, page 121. Speaking of Antichrist, it says, "...who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God." Showing himself that he is God. It's a lot on God there, isn't there? Just one problem. It's not the real God. But uh, this is the absolute height of blasphemy. Uh, this could only happen if the Spirit gets out of the way, so to speak, and God allows it. Antichrist will be opposed to any concept of God other than himself. I mean, it is totally all about him. Jump down to the bottom of the page. Notice that Antichrist is against all objects of worship and exalts himself against whatever is called God. But in particular, he zeroes in on the God of Israel as he goes into the rebuilt temple of the Jews and there presents himself as God. Amazing. This man will have the audacity to actually claim to be the most high God, the highest power overall. Now that's an incredible claim, the absolute height of blasphemy. Page 122. I come all the way down. We're going to have to be selective because we've got to get through the entire booklet, you know, tonight. So uh, we will get there. Uh, you know, we'll either do uh, the, the, a little longer route or the shorter route, but we'll get there. One way or another, we'll get there like we do on Sunday mornings. But anyway, page 122, but below the footnote, the event mentioned here in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 is that which Daniel referenced in Daniel 9.27 and which Christ mentioned in Matthew 24.15 as the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet. And then in Matthew 24.21, Christ connects it to the time of the great tribulation. So it's all connected here to the day of the Lord, the time of the tribulation, the Antichrist, and, and what is happening here. Uh, the language in Daniel emphasizes this as the height of abomination. Antichrist is totally consumed with self. 
He exalts himself. He shows himself that he is God. Revelation 13 brings out that it is at this time Antichrist will rule the world for 42 months and demand that all take his mark in worship or die. Daniel 9.27 is very clear that it is in the very middle point of the seven-year tribulation period when this will transpire. Note that at this point, there will definitely be a functionally rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. In fact, the word temple here is the Greek word naos, referring to the innermost sanctuary of the temple complex. Uh, Bottom of the page there. Uh, The most contested piece of property in the world today is the Temple Mount. The Jews call Israel the epicenter of the world, and the epicenter of Israel is Jerusalem, and the epicenter of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount. This is ground zero in conjunction with the second coming. All right, page 123, top of the page there. These are interesting days in which Israel, in fulfillment of prophecy, is back in the land, which they are. And not only that, the battle is red hot for Jerusalem. In fact, I was listening to National News this before I came, and, and imagine of all things, they were talking about Jerusalem and the Western Bank and the conflict that's going on there. I mean, it's just constantly in the news. How in the world will the Jews ever be able to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount when the Muslims have erected the Dome of the Rock on that very spot? It's open. Great question. Uh, Stay tuned. It will happen. How it will happen, I have no idea. You know, some say there's a fault right under the the Dome of the Rock. God could bring it down. (laughs) But what would happen then? You think the Muslims would say, okay, your turn. (laughs) Uh, very unlikely. Uh, but somehow it is going to happen. I, it is fascinating to think about. Probably wouldn't believe it except for the Bible tells it. And that's why I believe it, even though I don't know how it will happen. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? These were not new things to the Thessalonians. When Paul had been with them in person, he had told them these things. Hence the exhortation to get a grip on their thinking and not be all shook up. Uh, Verse 6, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. That's interesting. He says, you know what's restraining. Do we know what is restraining? Well, not exactly. I think we do, but we're not specifically told. Although they knew because Paul had told them. So he didn't reiterate it. Uh, Note that in verse 5, Paul says that when he was with them, he had told them these things. Uh, These are things that Paul shared personally with them that we are not specifically told. I tend to think this included the restraining role of the Holy Spirit in relation to the church and the day of the Lord. I take it that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, but the fact is Paul does not explicitly state this. However, the Thessalonians knew exactly what Paul was referring to. Skip the next sentence. The language here is significant. In verse 6, what is restraining is neuter participle. While in verse 7, the masculine participle, he who now restrains is used. What accounts for the gender change from neuter to masculine concerning the restrainer? Well, I talk about that a little bit. Uh, I do take it's uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jump down to the next uh, paragraph. The restrainer must be a greater force than Satan because it is the power of Satan that is being held back. Uh, Do we know of a greater power than Satan? Yeah. How many? Just one, right? That would be God. So I say only God qualifies for this role. We note that both genders, neuter and masculine, are used in reference to the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. 
Next page, page 124, top of the page. The sense is that verse 6 is emphasizing the reality of a restraining force, while verse 7 emphasizes his personage. But the same reality is in view in both verses, namely the person of the Holy Spirit. That's my view. Uh, Observe that Antichrist can only be revealed in his own time. And God is in charge of the timetable, uh, which is another argument that the power of God is in view. Uh, Next paragraph. But get this key point. The revealing of Antichrist is being held back by the restrainer until the proper time. Starting in verse 3, Paul is developing what is holding back Antichrist. It is shown to be the event of the departure in verse 3. Remember we talked about this last night, departure, apostasia, in what sense, doctrinal or literal departure. Uh, You know, there's all that discussion. But it is shown to be the event of the departure in verse 3, and it is shown to be the restrainer in verses 6 and 7. And I think those realities go together. Uh, The qualified departure of the Spirit in verse 3 corresponds to the removal of the restrainer in verses 6 and 7. It is this reality that allows the Antichrist to then be revealed. And that's what he says, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, again we have that restrainer in view, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Departure. The word mystery refers to that which is hidden until God reveals it. It is that which we would not know apart from divine revelation. In this case here, the mystery refers to the coming climax in human history of lawlessness under the leadership of Antichrist. Uh, Come down under the uh, reference, 1 John 2.18, right under that. What is preventing this climactic rebellion is only he who now restrains. This is the only thing in the way of Antichrist coming to the fore. Uh, Here, the personal masculine pronoun is used pointing to a definite person whom I take to be the Holy Spirit, as as I've said. Uh, Oh, I forgot my... Excuse me. (laughs) Here we go. Uh, Let's see. Did I skip something? I'm looking for John Walvert. Is that him? No, this is Hebert, right? No. Okay, we'll go. There we go. Thank you, John. I need all the help I can get. Uh, So note here, the quote from John Walvert. Just as the Spirit came on Pentecost, so he will leave when when Christ takes the church out of the world. The very removal of both the, the church and the Spirit from the world will release the world to sin as it never has before. And then uh, the next quote here uh, from Hebert, As a member of the Godhead, the Spirit is omnipresent. He has always been in the world, and he will certainly continue to be present during the Great Tribulation. But at Pentecost, he assumed a special relationship to the church as its indweller. After the completion of his work in the church, he will resume the relation to mankind he had before Pentecost. And uh, so that's what I think is in view. Now, I want to emphasize that while I think the emphasis here is on the Spirit, I do think that his restraining ministry is in conjunction with and through the church, especially in reference to the truth. Since Pentecost, the Spirit and the church in many ways are linked together. The church is now the temple of the Spirit. The church is sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. 
And I want you to note that a major theme in this whole context is one of deception. Once the Spirit, in conjunction with with the church, is removed, tremendous deception will come upon the world. It is the church in this age that is the pillar and support of the truth. It is the church that is empowered by the Spirit to be witnesses to the truth of Christ. Uh, under the uh, Revelation twenty two seventeen quote, I submit to you that the restraining ministry of the Spirit is him working through the church in conjunction with truth. When that ministry of truth by the Holy Spirit working through the church is removed, all hell is going to break loose on planet Earth. There's going to be a climactic apostasy and lawlessness, the likes of which the world has never known. Uh, next uh, line there. Theologically, I don't think all restraint is going to be removed in the tribulation period. I just think it's going to be completely removed in the sense of the instrument of the church. So I really think what, what God is using in the world today as a restraint is the people of God, is the church, which is a pillar and ground of the truth. So notice, jump down just above the Second uh, Thessalonians 2.8 reference. It is ironic that the world hates the church and her ministry of truth, but has no idea that the only thing keeping them from full-blown disastrous judgment is the presence of the Spirit's ministry working through the church. Isn't that kind of ironic? Uh, the world should thank the church. Uh, they should appreciate the church. Of course, they don't. You know, the, the world is, system is headed up by Satan. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Well, when will the lawless one, the Antichrist, be revealed? Well, when the restrainer, the Holy Spirit as I take it, is taken out of the way. This implies a very short window. The sense here is not that there will be a large vacuum between the rapture and the start of the day of the Lord, as some suggest. No, the sense is that upon removal, the restrainer will then immediately, Satan's man, Antichrist, will be revealed. Once the restrainer is removed, there is nothing stopping Antichrist. He will immediately be moved into position in short order. That's the spirit, I think, of what is being said. Top of page 126. Now, there may be a short period of transition, but with the restrainer gone, Satan will quickly move to fill this void. The whole point of this text is to show us that the only thing holding back Antichrist is the restrainer, right? I mean, that's the point. Uh, When he is gone, Paul says, then the lawless one will be revealed. Note the tremendous emphasis here in the context on restraining and revealing. Uh, All the way through here, verse 3, we have the departure first and then the man of sin revealed. Verse 6 is restraining that he may be revealed. And then now in verses 7 and 8, the restrainer is removed, then the lawless one will be revealed. So we have this, this constant theme this constant drumbeat that there's a restrainer that's keeping the Antichrist at bay. But once that restrainer's gone, the Antichrist comes on the scene. There's nothing preventing him. So I think uh, it happens very quickly after the restrainer is gone, after the rapture, after the departure of the Spirit uh, in, the, in the church and, and in conjunction with the church there. So, in summary, I contend that this is the major point Paul is reiterating. Before the day of the Lord can come, which is synonymous with the revealing of the Antichrist, there must first be the removal of the Spirit's restraining ministry working through the church. The conclusion is that this necessitates the removal of the church. The conclusion is that it is impossible to be in the day of the Lord while the church is still here. 
It's like Paul saying, you as the church are still here, so you can't possibly be in the day of the Lord. And that's true. I think uh, that's, that's the whole idea here. Uh, the Spirit is living in the church. We are the temple of the living God. We have a ministry of truth. It serves as a restraining ministry. But once the Holy Spirit in the church is taken out, then uh, it will be set up for last day's apostasy in, in a maximum way. Okay, let's jump down, uh, skip that next paragraph. Uh, The breath of Christ's mouth metaphorically speaks of his word. When Christ comes in glory, he will just say the word and Antichrist will be destroyed. In Revelation 19, 20, we find that he will be cast alive into the lake of fire. In effect, Christ, as the living word of God, will say to Antichrist, go straight to hell and he will be there. The breath of Christ will be like a fiery blast that blows him straight to hell. Verse 9, The coming of the lawless one is is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. What defines Antichrist is lawlessness. He's the lawless one. Uh, He has no regard for any law other than his own. After all, he claims he is God and he sets the rules. You know, when you're God, you can can make the rules, right? That's what he claims. Uh, His coming is in the power of Satan. Satanic working and power will be behind him. Note the language with All power, meaning with all the power that Satan has to offer. He will bring forth the full brunt of satanic power, signs, and lying wonders. And it will be very strong. The language here speaks of supernatural, miraculous power. Signs speak of something that marks him or distinguishes him from others. Wonders are things that amaze and cause awe. A footnote down at the bottom of the page. Not all miracles are from God. Satan, too, has power, and when unleashed, he will do all manner of miraculous things through Antichrist. But note, they are lying wonders. That is, they are deceptive. They lead people to conclusions that are not true, namely, that Antichrist is God. Uh, Next page, page 127. Uh, Skip that insert at the top. Uh, Just as power, signs, and wonders verified the ministry of Christ, so Satan will seek to demonstrate validity Uh, Through Antichrist. You know, he's always imitating God. Satan never really comes up with anything new. He's always imitating. After all, Antichrist is Satan's substitute for Christ. But there is one tell-all distinction. What Christ did, he did in the Father's name. In accordance with Scripture. On the other hand, Antichrist comes in his own name, doing his own thing. Antichrist will not tie his ministry to Scripture because if he did, it would expose him. Rather, he will do these things in a vacuum in his own name and on that basis claim to be God. Miracles by themselves without the context of Scripture do not prove they are from God. It is so important to understand that Christ's miraculous ministry was not in a vacuum. They were a fulfillment of Scripture in accord with Messianic prophecy. There are huge amounts of professing Christians that are so shallow in their thinking and theology that they think God is just about random miracles. He is not. True miracles in the Bible, I'm going to talk about sign miracles here, are not random. They are signs that buttress and point to scriptural truth, especially concerning the Messiah. Uh, Jump down to the next paragraph. Now at the end of the church age, there are great volumes of people who get all excited about supposed signs, wonders, and miracles, but at the same time have very little deep Bible knowledge. And I think, personally, that's a setup for Antichrist. You'd love to walk into that fact. Let me show you. Let's have a a signs and wonders uh, event here. 
I'll show you. Yeah. Verse 10. And with all unrighteousness, unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Those who perish will be deceived. The career of Antichrist builds to where people will be forced with a choice. They will either worship Antichrist and take the mark, 666, or they will have a death warrant on their head. For the first three and a half years, the two witnesses will be a powerful witness to the truth. 144,000 Jewish evangelists will get the word out. It is in this context that Christ says, Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Next page, page 128. Uh, skip the footnote up at the top. The point is that prior to Antichrist claiming to be God, a tremendous gospel witness will go forth in the tribulation period. The reason multitudes on earth will be deceived by Antichrist is because they have rejected the truth of God. They rejected the truth of those two powerful witnesses in Revelation 11. They rejected the truth of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. The language here is interesting because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. This puts the onus squarely on the head of the rejectors. The word receive means to welcome warmly as you would welcome a loved one into your home. Next uh, paragraph. This is descriptive of the nature of saving faith. In a true saving faith, there is a warm welcome of the truth. There is a love for and embracing of the truth. Remember how he told the Thessalonians, uh, when they, for this reason, we thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. There's the idea. You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. This is, a, this is indicative of a saving faith response to the truth of the gospel. Verse, uh, the next uh, line there, note, verse 10 is the completion of the thought which began in verse 9. The reason these people will be deceived by Antichrist miracles is because they reject the truth. That makes them vulnerable to satanic deception. Verse 11, and for this reason, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. It is because these people flagrantly rejected the gospel that God will send them strong delusion. That's why, for this reason, because of their rejection. Delusion literally means wandering or roaming. The sense is wandering from the path of truth. The core idea is error. They will experience a powerful working of error. Note here that God sends this as a consequence of their willful rejection of truth. That's why James 1.13 is clear that God does not himself tempt anyone to do evil. So what is in view here? This is part of God's judicial judgment in which he gives people over to a debased mind as seen in Romans chapter 1. Go down to the footnote there. Some have said this means that all who clearly heard the gospel prior to the rapture will have no more opportunity to be saved. However... The context relates to Antichrist's lying wonders and the embracing of him. So while rejection of truth may include pre-tribulation rejection, it seems primarily to deal with the rejection of God's truth within the context of the tribulation period. God is going to put before the world a clear test between the truth of Christ and the lies of Antichrist. Top of page 129. In the first uh, three and a half years of the tribulation, the truth will be boldly brought forth, as I say, by the two witnesses and the 144,000. 
At that point, it will be decision time as the Antichrist declares himself to be God and demands the whole world worship him. People will be forced to decide whether they will take their stand for Christ or whether they will pledge allegiance to Antichrist by taking the mark of the beast. So I think there's going to be a real clear mark of distinction here, and you're going to have to decide here. The lie here has the definite article. A definite, specific lie is in view. It's the climactic lie, the great lie, the ultimate lie. It's the lie that Antichrist is God, is seen in verse 4. But there's more involved, at least I think so. Uh, And I quote Charles Ryrie here, It is right at the midpoint of the tribulation, just before Antichrist declares himself to be God, that Satan is allowed by God to do something unprecedented. This is the strong delusion sent from God. At this point, Satan is actually going to be allowed by God to bring Antichrist back from the dead. Revelation 13.3, and then also chapter 17. It says Antichrist receives a mortal wound, that's a deadly wound, and then is healed. It says then that the world marvels and follows him. The word mortally wounded in Revelation 13.3, speaking of Antichrist, is the very same word used when speaking of Christ having been slain in Revelation 5.6. Will Christ literally die? Yes. Will Antichrist literally die? Yes. This is the strong delusion. Jump down under there uh, to the next paragraph. Thus, the strong delusion is the resurrection of Antichrist which results in the great lie of his claim to be God. He will claim to be so great to be even able to defy death. Now that, my friends, is a powerful deception in the superlative. And it's almost like God says, you wouldn't believe the truth of the resurrected Christ, which comes with all the prophecy of the Old Testament in fulfillment of it. And now they will accept This resurrected Antichrist as God. They will accept the counterfeit, the great deception. Verse 12, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God's going to hold them accountable. Note the double emphasis here in verse 10, that this judgment from God comes upon them because of their willful rejection of the truth. These people have already hardened themselves against God and His truth, and it's in that state that God brings this judicial judgment upon them. Unbelief here is shown not merely to be an intellectual issue, but a moral issue related to the heart where commitments are made. They choose not to believe the truth because that would have affected their sinful pleasures. Had pleasure in unrighteousness means they willfully choose it. Bottom of the page, these people will reject the truth of Christ and take the mark of the beast for the few passing pleasures it seems to offer. The book of Revelation ten times calls them earth dwellers, meaning they live for now and what this world has to offer them. This is the offer of Antichrist, and they take it. So, top of page 130, and uh, note uh, here, uh, the issue of deception and truth. That's the issue. Lying wonders, all in righteous deception, strong delusion, the lie. And they will buy it. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth. They did not believe the truth. I think it was clearly presented, the contrast before them. And uh, so God allows them uh, to be deceived because they reject the truth. 
Unbelief rejects the truth in favor of the pleasures of sin. In contrast, the nature of true saving faith welcomes and loves the truth. Next paragraph, there you have it. This is what the world is coming to, and the world doesn't even know it. The world is on a collision course with Antichrist in the day of the Lord and the unparalleled satanic deception. But that can't happen until the restraining ministry of the Spirit through the church is taken out of the way. Uh, Jump down just before the next verse there, uh, towards the bottom of the page. The picture Paul paints in the first part of 2 Thessalonians 2 is terrifying. So terrifying that now at the end of the chapter, he seeks to assure the believers and comfort them about their position in Christ. As believers, we are safe in Christ and the need and need not fear the coming terrible day of the Lord and the rule of Antichrist, which is about to come upon the world. Yet we are exhorted to stand fast in our faith. This is the concluding emphasis in chapter 2. And so he says, verse 13, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because from the beginning God... Because from the beginning... Or back up, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So at this point, Paul draws a contrast. Uh, in the first 12 verses, he described the reality of Antichrist and those who will be deceived by him in the context of the day of the Lord. Now, in contrast, Paul focuses on the calling and destiny of believers who will not have to face Antichrist. You can almost sense a joyful sigh of relief in this expression of thanksgiving. Page 131, middle of the page there. Paul is thankful for them as the beloved of the Lord because God chose them for salvation. He is thankful for their salvation and for what God has done here. Uh, Note the phrase from the beginning in some manuscripts reads, as the first fruits, with the sense being God chose you as the first fruits, meaning as part of the early church, they were the first part of a great harvest to follow. And that certainly does fit. Uh, Theologically, God chose the elect even before the foundation of the world. Election is a deep doctrine which no one can fully comprehend. Sovereign election stands in biblical tension with human responsibility. Salvation is God's plan. And all the factors involved are known only by him. And the way he operates does not violate any of these factors. It's his plan, and his ways are past finding out. God made man in his image, which includes having the ability to think and choose. This reality does not take away from God's sovereignty. Rather, it redounds back to his glory because he made us the way we are. However, because of sin, man does not and cannot in and of himself move towards God. We can't do it. In our depravity. On our own, there is none that seeks after God. Nobody ever makes the first move towards God. Doesn't happen. However, God does seek and convict people of sin. He shows them the truth, so they are without excuse. And that is why the Bible says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I mean, it comes back to what are you going to do with the truth? The fact is, God chose who would be saved before the foundation of the world, but he has not, but he has told us that we can't comprehend all the realities that went into that choice. But God's grace choice is consistent with all the factors in his salvation plan, including human responsibility. It's consistent with his person. It's consistent with the offer of salvation and human responsibility. We bow and we confess that his ways are past finding out, but of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. 
Amen. William MacDonald says, election and human responsibility are both Bible doctrines. And it's best to believe and teach both, even if we can't understand how both can be true. Yeah, that's where I'm at, right there. He sums it up in a very good way. Let's teach both because both are Bible doctrines. How they harmonize perfectly is beyond my three-pound brain. Maybe you've got to figure it out. I doubt it. Okay, page 132. Uh, a footnote there. Uh, pick it up right in the middle of that footnote. In this context here, I think uh, Paul has in view a specific aspect of salvation, namely the salvation deliverance that he referenced in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, <clears throat> where the very same word salvation is used. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul emphasized the same truth when he said they were waiting for Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's this aspect of salvation that was stressed with the Thessalonians in relation to their concerns about the day of the Lord. So, um, note here, got the very same word related for salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. And then here, he's thankful. After talking about the Antichrist and what's coming as far as the judgment and the day of the Lord, he says we're bound to... To give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you for salvation. And, uh, of course, one area of salvation involves all other areas of salvation. That's true. But to jump down here uh, to just uh, the bottom of the page, you're right above the bold there. Paul is saying to these believers, God loves you and decided from the very beginning that as believers you would be delivered from the day of the Lord judgment. His goal is to calm their shaken and troubled minds about this subject, telling them of God's sovereign plan of deliverance from the day of the Lord's wrath is the antidote. Bottom of the page, and how do we have this salvation God has chosen for believers? Well, it's through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Next page, page 133. <clears throat> the salvation unto which they were chosen does not operate automatically. The electing purpose of God is carried out through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. None are chosen apart from them. Uh, note James Denny quote there under Hebert. Uh, it, is it is impossible to separate these two things or to define their relation to each other. Sometimes the first seems to condition the second. Sometimes the order is reversed. The two, as it were, interpenetrate each other. Uh, come down just above the next verse there, Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 14. Belief in the truth is shown to be belief in the gospel as seen in the next verse, which is in contrast to those who do not receive it as seen in verses 10 and 12. He says in verse 14, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we could really spend some time here uh, thinking about this, <clears throat> called you by the gospel to what end? Well, that we might share in the glory of Christ for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. The end goal here is glory. We're going to share in. So Paul is still continuing his thought with regard to salvation, which he began in verse 13. They were called to this salvation by the gospel. Uh, top of page 134. This great plan of God's salvation, which began in eternity past, will culminate in the believers obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is their destiny. And so, uh, put this up here. Yeah. 
God's plan of salvation, eternity past chosen for salvation through sanctification of the Spirit, belief of the truth, called by the gospel. And I see this as a package here. This is a package here. And to what end? For the obtaining of glory. That's eternity future. So eternity past, what happens in history, and then eternity future for the obtaining of glory. That, that is our ultimate destiny. So footnote here. This whole process of salvation is God's doing. Nothing is said to be of our good works. Nothing is said of baptism or ritual. Salvation begins with God. It ends with him. God chose. God sanctifies. God calls. God glorifies. The one thing that intersects with human responsibility is belief. We must believe the truth of the gospel. And even our belief is because of God's working in our hearts. Belief is non-meritorious. We believe through grace. As Paul says in Romans 4.16, Therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace. No wonder, Paul says, we are bound to give thanks to God. We give thanks to God because salvation is His doing. Okay, uh, well, that's it. We're going to have to stop there because uh, the clock tells us we have to stop there. So we'll get through the rest of it here when we come back. Lord, again, we thank you for our time. And uh, we do thank you for the truth that you reveal here. And the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, ultimately the world's being set up uh, for a tremendous time of judgment in the day of the Lord. And it's going to build to this climactic point where it's going to be Christ versus the Antichrist. And this terrible time of, of supernatural deception that will come upon the world. And uh, as Antichrist declares himself to be God, risen from the dead, claims he's got the uh, all, all power, all authority. So, Lord, we thank you for the truth of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who came in the Father's name, fulfilling the scriptures. Lord, bless our fellowship time now, and thank you for the food and for the hands that have prepared it. And uh, we look forward to coming back for the second session here and uh, wrapping it up. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll see you at 730. It's the appointed hour. We got to go. Yeah, or the half hour. Yeah, so they'll filter in as we uh, get started here. But, uh, you know, maybe we need to... We're, we're thinking about adjustments for next year already because uh, we don't have enough time to eat, right? So... So uh, I don't know what we'll do, but we'll figure out something, I guess. All right, we are on page 134, and you know how far we got to go, right? We got to go to page 155, which means we're going to spend less than a minute on each page, right? That's right, about that. Okay, uh, bottom of the page, Second uh, Thessalonians 2.15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Next page. To stand fast is to stand firm and not be frightened or unsettled. It is to stand on the truth unmoved. Next uh, paragraph. The word traditions literally means things handed down. But note it is qualified by which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Note the important qualifier, our, in the phrase, by word or our epistle. This is to say that it, was car it carried apostolic authority. Uh, let's jump to the next page, 136, and top of the page. I emphasize again that the traditions handed down from God, as seen in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, were 
those teachings that were from Paul the Apostle and his associates. It's on this basis that the Thessalonians were to stand fast and hold firm. The same is true for us today. If you say you have a message from God, you better have your Bible open and your finger on a verse. Otherwise, you are a liar and a false teacher. So we accept those things handed down from the apostles who spoke with authority for Jesus Christ. We accept those traditions, those things that are handed down, but just plain church traditions or man-made traditions, no, we don't accept that. Okay, verse 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Next page, top of page 137. Paul's prayer is that God would comfort their hearts. God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all tribulation. The teaching that they were currently under God's wrath in the day of the Lord's judgment had greatly troubled them. And that really would trouble you, right? If I said, you know what? We have now entered into the day of the Lord. And uh, we are experiencing the judgment. We're, we're in it. Boy, that would, that would be troubling. And that was where they were at. Paul's prayer is that the God of truth would soothe and comfort their hearts. Uh, that they would focus on his love, encouragement, and hope. And the hope being that, you know, we're not going to face the wrath of God. Uh, Further, Paul's prayer was that God would establish them in every good word, doctrine, and work practice. They had been tossed to and fro over whether their persecution experience indicated they were experiencing the day of the Lord's judgment. Paul's prayer is that they would be stable and not allow false teachers or experience to govern their thinking. They needed to go by apostolic teaching God's word and rest in this. His prayer is that they would be stable in what they say, what they do. Okay, uh, come over to page 138, second paragraph. Having given doctrinal uh, correction concerning the day of the Lord in the first part of chapter 2, Paul then ended the chapter with prayerful encouragement. Chapter 3 continues on with this emphasis on prayer, where he says, verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Uh, Skip the next uh, line there. Paul's pattern is to lay down sound doctrine and then build practical emphasis upon that foundation. Here again, we see that pattern. Chapter 2 presents mostly doctrinal information related to the day of the Lord. And now in chapter 3, he will make practical application on how they should then live. Of primary importance is the believer's prayer life. Uh, Skip the next paragraph. We all need prayer. Paul needed prayer, and he requested it for him and for his team. Next paragraph. But note that Paul's primary prayer request here concerned the getting out of the gospel. That's what he's asking prayer about, the getting out of the gospel. That was always primary for him. Page 139. Third uh, paragraph down. Specifically, Paul's prayer request is that the word of the Lord may run swiftly. The language here may harken back to Psalm 147. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. And then come down towards the bottom of the page, just above Acts 13, 48. Paul's prayer request was not only that the gospel advance rapidly, but also that it be glorified. And then he adds, just as it is with you. The word glorify means to exalt honor or render something excellent. Page 140. And uh, our next verse, 2 Thessalonians 3, 2, 
and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Paul's prayer is that the word make rapid progress through their ministry and be welcomed, but he realizes wicked people used by the devil often get in the way. Hence, he also asks prayer that they may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men who do not hold to the faith. Well, you know, he could have just said, well, God is sovereign. What will be, will be, right? And that's true. God is sovereign. And what will be, will be. And yet he's saying, pray that we are delivered from these wicked men. God works through prayer. Okay, page 141. Jump down to the middle of the page. Uh, We note there Paul's, whoops, Paul's uh, prayer requests. One, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly. Two, that the word of the Lord may be glorified. Three, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. These are really the essence of his prayer requests. Uh, skip the next, or no, the next verse there, 2 Thessalonians 3, 3. But the Lord is faithful, and all God's people said, Amen, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Uh, skip that next paragraph. Paul has just prayed in 2.17 that the Lord would establish him in every good word and work. Now he expresses confidence that the Lord will be faithful to establish them. Next paragraph. So what if people don't grow like they should? Huh? What about that? Uh, Is God not faithful in such a case? No, God is always faithful in his part. But people need to be responsive to his nurturing work in their lives. Paul is saying that God can be counted on to stabilize them, but he turns right around in the next verse and speaks of what is commanded of them. Here again, we have the the intersection of divine activity and human responsibility. God is always faithful in seeking to establish us, But we have to respond properly to the truth. That is why Paul prays for them, as we find in verse 5. Okay, let's come over to page 142, down to our next verse, 3-4. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Because of God's activity in their lives, Paul has confidence concerning their obedience, concerning what he is commanding them. And then the bottom of the page, the word command was often used in reference to orders that would be given by a superior officer. In this case, the commanding authority is God himself, and Paul is simply the messenger who speaks for God. The real authority is always God himself. But do note that Paul is not giving out suggestions, but rather authoritative commands. As an apostle, he definitely spoke with the authority as Christ's representative. Top of page 143, yet he brings the point home with a word of compliment concerning his confidence that they will obey. So he's giving a strong order, and yet he's doing it in a, in a, in a winsome way. You can see Paul's winsome and, winsomeness and wisdom here as he deals with people. We consistently see this tactful tone in Paul's ministry. There's a great lesson here for us, especially for those in leadership positions who deal with people problems on a regular basis. Constructive criticism and positive reinforcement often makes all the difference in the lives of people. 3.5. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So this is really what he is uh, prayerfully desiring for them. Come across the page, page 144, second paragraph. God works through prayer. Paul needed prayer. The Thessalonians needed prayer. All believers need prayer. God's provisions are in place concerning our walk, but often we enter into the good of them through prayer. 
What if we don't pray? Well, you know, James says you have not because you ask not. I mean, we, God's way of receiving is through prayer. He works through prayer. Everything in the Christian life needs to be bathed in prayer. And we see this in the intercourse of Paul's writings. Even in this short epistle here, uh, even in the short epistle, there are four such prayers. Now, building on his doctrinal instruction, interwoven with prayer, Paul gives some needed directives regarding Christian living. So here's what he says. Kind of some hard things here, too. Chapter 3, verse 6. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, this has the authority of Christ behind it, that you withdraw from every brother, family matter, every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition, the things handed down from God through us apostles, not according to the tradition which he received from us. It seems that in the context of confusion over the Lord's coming, there were some in the fellowship of believers who were being lazy and meddlesome. This was a problem that needed to be addressed. Meddlesome loafers in the body must be dealt with. Uh, Skip down the second paragraph from the bottom. Paul uses just the right balance of encouragement and confrontation. Church disciplinary matters are always difficult. Actually, as a pastor, it's, it's the, the last thing I ever want to have to deal with. I, I, I hate disciplinary matters. But sometimes you have to deal with it. Very few people like to confront, and those who do often are not wise in how they go about it. There's a little something wrong with somebody who likes, you know, I wake up in the morning looking for confrontation. There's just a little something wrong with that. To hit just the right balance is a great challenge. Paul started out relatively soft, but then he got more firm. And yet he remained brotherly throughout. Uh, Notice he addresses brethren. This is a family matter. Uh, Let's go to the next page, page 145. And come down to the footnote, the first one. Church discipline is to be carried out for two essential reasons. Number one, it is to be motivated by love, and love is corrective for the sake of the beloved. Discipline properly carried out is an act of love for the good of the individual. And number two, sin must be dealt with to protect holiness within the body. Sin, if left unchecked, is like a cancer that can destroy the whole body if not dealt with. So for those two reasons, the individual's good, but also for the good of the body. Uh, Skip the next footnote. Not only is the word command strong, but it speaks to the authority behind the command. This command is given in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The tone is one of authority, the Lord Jesus Christ represents his full, Lord Jesus Christ represents his full name and all that he is. Uh, Skip the Hebert quote and the next sentence there, right under that. To withdraw is to pull back from, to shrink from, to avoid, to shun. In other words, they are to break fellowship with every believer who is living sinfully in this way. Note they are still called brethren, which is precisely why they are being held accountable. We don't hold unbelievers accountable. But if one calls himself a Christian, we do. You can't live that way. Uh, This discipline applies to every brother who walks disorderly. Walks refers to a lifestyle pattern. The word disorderly is a military term that means to be out of rank, to be out of line, out of order, hence disorderly. Sometimes it's translated as unruly. It refers to those who are undisciplined and irresponsible. These people were misbehaving and out of line. They were out of order with the word of God. Okay, next page, page 146. Uh, Second uh, paragraph down there. In summary, 
those who were disorderly were those whose lives were out of line with apostolic teaching. A disorderly life is one that does not line up with the Bible, with apostolic teaching. Verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Here Paul puts forth his missionary team as an example of how they should live. They did not live disorderly when they stayed in Thessalonica. Paul, in effect, says, We modeled proper Christian living before you. Verse 8, Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul's not saying that they never had a meal at someone's house. Rather, he is saying that in Thessalonica, they earned their own living instead of depending on others to support them. Labor and toil are intensive terms, meaning they work to the point of exhaustion. Night and day further intensify how hard they worked. And the reason they did this is because they did not want to be a burden to any of the new believers in Thessalonica. Verse 9. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Paul is really quick to add this caveat. It's not because we do not have authority. The word authority means the right. Uh, Paul is saying that although they did not receive financial support for their ministry in Thessalonica, it was really their, actually their, their right to do so. However, they waived that right. Uh, Hebert says, Paul was sensitive about his right, moral power or authority to receive support from his missionary labors and insisted that the fact must not be forgotten. He is anxious that his own example should not be used to deny that right to other workers. They must not make his practice into a rule for other ministers in the future. But Paul was equally insistent upon the fact that he had voluntarily waived this right. All right, page 147. Next verse, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither should shall he eat. Note the issue here is not those who are unable to work, but rather those who are unwilling to work. Uh, Jump down under the Olasky quote there towards the bottom of the page. Note again, this is not a suggestion, but a command. If anyone will not work, neither should he eat. This is a maximum that is to define the Christian community. In keeping with our faith, we are to be hard workers. We are not to be lazy. We are not to have a welfare mentality. We are not to have an entitlement mentality. Uh, Page 148. Let's go to the middle of the page. Lazy people are not to be catered to, pun intended. Sometimes soft-headed people go by emotions instead of principle. They feel sorry for lazy people and help them out. And in so doing, they don't really help them at all. Verse 11, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. This is a problem. Not all talk about people is sinful. Uh, Paul regularly had communication with various people about what was going on in communities he had spent time working in. Uh, Example in, in 1 Corinthians there. So that's not what he's talking about. Go to page 149, top of the page, the second paragraph there. In the Greek language, there is a play on words here with the sense being they are not busy, but busybodies. 
It's interesting that if people are not productively busy, they tend to be busy in negative ways, right? Busy bodies. Uh, People need to be doing something. And if they're not busy doing what is right and proper, they will be busy doing what is wrong and improper. It is true that idleness is the devil's workshop. Here Paul spells out the specific nature of their disorderly conduct. In short, they were lazy and meddlesome. It's bad enough when someone is lazy, but adding a busybody to it enhances the problem. And of course, the one feeds the other. Busybodies are those who interfere in the lives of others. As has well been said, they mind everybody's business but their own. Uh, They are meddlesome and stick their nose in other people's business. Busybodies cause trouble. And there's, you know, I don't know why, (laughs) sometimes is that, that tendency. Verse 12. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort. He's used the command about three times here. Uh, Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Bottom of the page. They were commanded to work in quietness and eat their own bread. He is saying we order you to be responsible workers, making your own living instead of just sponging off others. And while working, keep your mouth shut about everybody else's business. Quietness is the idea of being silent or settled down. In other words, he is saying, don't make a nuisance of yourself. He is saying they should settle down, get to work, and mind their own business. Page 150. In short, Paul commands the disorderly to stop idling, stop meddling, and stop sponging off of others. The testimony of believers is to be one of hard, responsible workers, not freeloaders or leechers. Verse 13, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Isn't that interesting how he follows that up? Uh, Really addressing the lazy uh, freeloaders who were busybodies. But then he follows that up with saying, But but brethren, uh, the rest of you do not grow weary in doing good. Skip that first paragraph. It is easy to grow weary in doing good in the context of freeloaders who just take advantage of the system, right? Uh, For those who have been burned in this way, they might say, I'm tired of this. I'm not going to give anymore. Paul, in effect, responds by exhorting them to not have this attitude. There's a word play in the Greek that could be translated in this way, while doing good, do not go bad. Those who abuse brotherly love must be held accountable, but at the same time, we must not grow weary in helping others with legitimate needs. Paul presents a thoughtful balance. On the one hand, if anyone will not work, neither should he eat. But on the other hand, do not grow weary in doing good in regard to legitimate needs. This requires discernment and the balance of tough, tender love. Verse 14, And if anyone does not obey Our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Page 151. Uh, Right under the 1 Corinthians uh, 14, 37 quote, those who refuse to obey apostolic instruction are to be noted. To note something means to mark something well or to brand. Paul doesn't elaborate on how this is to be done, such as through public censure or otherwise. He simply says to the brethren in the church to note such a person and not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. The verb translated do not keep company is literally do not mix with. In other words, he's instructing them not to have fellowship with them. 
The emphasis here is on personal responsibility of each person in the body to respond in this way to those whom they discern are not obeying the apostolic mandate. If someone is being lazy and meddlesome, then pull back from that person. They are not to be enablers who just continue to go along with this sinful behavior. Each person in the body is responsible to hold them accountable in this way. Skip that next paragraph. The goal is to shame them, which hopefully will bring about repentance and full restoration. It is a case of tough love that seeks to bring them to their spiritual senses. The spirit here is corrective, not punitive. Verse 15, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Yet here too, Paul once again cautions against overreaction, even though irresponsible people in the body can be irksome, and we may tire of their bad behavior, and even though they are to be held accountable, yet we must not count them as an enemy. We are not to have a feeling of hostility against them. Page 152. Uh, jump all the way down to towards the bottom of the page, just above uh, our next verse. Paul now gives the benediction and the sign-off. Verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. You see the operative word there? Peace. Uh, they were all stirred up. They were lacking some peace. They were all concerned about, hey, have we entered into the judgment day of the Lord? Uh, and so forth. And he's uh, asking that the Lord give them peace. Uh, Let's go to the next page, page 153. Uh, Second paragraph there. The emphasis here is that the source of peace is the Lord himself. Real peace is found only in him. It is supernatural as seen in its connection with the Lord. The Greek word here for peace, erinne, has behind it the Hebrew word shalom, Shalom is the idea of wholeness or health. Everything is as it should be. Peace includes the absence of strife, the state of tranquility, the absence of negative fear. It is to be at rest in a context of security and wholesomeness. The New Testament speaks of peace with God and the peace of God. And uh, see, is this right? I think so. Yep. Uh, for example, peace with God in Romans 5.1 speaks of our position in Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that never changes, right? Our position. I mean, that's a forever and ever position. We are right with God in our position. We have peace with God. But in our experience, uh, Paul addresses Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So this relates to our experience. And uh, so we note our position and our experience. All right, page uh, 154. Uh, Skip that top uh, part there. In the Old Testament, the priests were to bless God's people in this way. Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In essence, 2 Thessalonians 3.16 is the New Testament equivalent of this Old Testament blessing when it says, may the Lord of peace give himself give you peace always in every way. And then Paul adds, the Lord be with you. The only way this peace is possible is because of the Lord's presence with them. Next uh, paragraph. In essence, the Lord's presence and his peace 
are already promised to the believer, as seen in Matthew 28 and John 14. What is now needed is that we walk in the good of it, that we enjoy the provision that he has made for us as we line up with his truth in our walk. The Lord be with us all to that end. Verse 17, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. Recall that there had evidently been forged letters put forth as being from Paul that had disturbed the Thessalonians concerning the day of the Lord, as we saw in 2.2. That is the context here. Paul evidently used an amuensis, a secretary, who wrote down what he had dictated. And then at the conclusion of the letter, he took the pen in hand and wrote the final lines to validate that indeed this letter was from him. That was his sign in every letter. And then finally, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Uh, We might also add that grace greetings are the hallmark in Paul's writings. Kind of coined this uh, grace greeting. Uh, This, again, is an expression of Paul's prayerful desire for them. Everything about Christianity begins and ends with grace. Uh, Next page, page 155. As believers, we have come to know God's saving grace, and we have been saved by His grace through faith. However, now as believers, we need God's grace continually to strengthen and empower us for Christian living. Our strength is found only in God. As we come before His throne of grace, we find grace piled upon grace is available for us. And note this gesture of grace. Uh, Paul's desire is that all of them experience this grace, including the disorderly. Those who are the recipients of grace exercise grace. Maranatha, our Lord comes. My brothers and sisters, even so come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Well, hey, thanks for being in my class this week. It's been a kind of a, we've moved pretty fast through it. Uh, There's a lot more to the commentary. Hopefully you can study it on your own. Uh, If a few of you guys wouldn't mind helping us put up about 10 tables in the fellowship hall for tomorrow. Uh, That would be great. I'd appreciate that. And uh, as far as next year, I am working, you know, years ago, I did a 12 message series that I called the right kind of faith. And then I put it into a paper and Albert Keller has been working on me to bring that out at some point. So I'm working on that now. For, for next year. That's what, that's what my topic's going to be, the right kind of faith and uh, dealing with that from all kinds of different directions. So that's, so that's next year. All right, let's have a closing prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for your word and uh, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the blessed hope. And uh, Lord, I thank you for these epistles which the Holy Spirit uh, saw fit to include in the canon of Scripture uh, for our instruction. And Lord, we know as we study the scriptures where we are, we are not in the day of the Lord judgment. Uh, We are living in the church age. We are living in the day of grace. But one day, that day will come to a close and uh, your wrath will come upon the whole world. It will come as a thief in the night and unexpected. And so, Lord, we are here as your people, uh, giving out the gospel, and, and uh, yet at the same time, we are to uh, work uh, while waiting. Uh, we are not to be lazy. We are not to be meddlesome. We are to be good citizens, good, good stewards in this life. And so, Lord, there's a balance here in terms of uh, 
uh, watching, uh, anticipating, certainly in the early days of the church, they, they had gotten the message from Paul that the Lord was about to come, and they were excited about it. And yet, uh, Lord, there's a balance in terms of uh, how we carry on here as, as brought out in these epistles here too. Lord, help us to continue to grow as we serve you uh, in these last days. Help us to be found faithful, uh, looking eagerly for the coming of Christ, and yet working while waiting. Again, thank you for this time together this week, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, yes. Extra food? Okay, so, and you'll have...